Welcome to the World Exposé podcast, where we delve into the past to better understand our global society through conversations with leading professors of history, political writers, international journalists, and more. Enjoy. We're joined by Dr. Isabella Jackson, Assistant Professor in Chinese History at Trinity College Dublin, former lecturer at Aberdeen and Oxford University. Dr. Jackson, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Hi, Loman. Thanks very much for having me. So just to give some context to all of our listeners, could you give a very brief overview on the key events that have shaped China and created China as we know it today, perhaps from the opium wars up to the ongoing Hong Kong protests? <laughs> That's a big question, but I'll do my best. Um, sure. I mean, a, a sort of fairly traditional potted history of modern Chinese history, which is still what's taught in China, would start with the opium wars. Nowadays, we probably think this is a bit of a problematic way of viewing the Chinese past because it privileges the foreign impact and suggests that the only things that have mattered in Chinese history are things that yeah. have come from abroad. But, you know, there's no getting the way that these made a big difference. So the opium wars were pretty much as bad as they sound. It was uh, Britain going to war with China to persuade it to allow them to sell opium, which was understood to be a narcotic drug in the 19th century. It was illegal in China. It was not illegal in Europe at the time. And so the British didn't see why they shouldn't sell it. And private traders called on the government to support them. There was a um, close call in, in Parliament. It wasn't something everyone thought was a good idea, which kind of demonstrates that it was immoral, even by the standards of 1839. And the, the decision was taken to go to war. It wasn't a walkover. It's often depicted as being a walkover, but it took two and a half years for the British to defeat the Qing Empire, which was the uh, dynasty in charge of China at the time. So that was 1839 to 1842. Um, and the big sort of decisive advantage that Britain had was uh, the first steamship. So the Nemesis was the very first steamship, and it was used in the first opening war. So the British won. They imposed the Treaty of Nanjing on China, which did not actually get their primary goal, which was to allow them to sell opium legally. I mean, they carried on doing it, but they didn't get everything they wanted. What they did get was Hong Kong ceded to them in perpetuity, and five other ports around the Chinese coast opened to foreign traders. Until then, foreigners weren't allowed to live in China permanently. They could have a base in Guangzhou, which was then called Canton in the south of China, near Hong Kong but they couldn't actually settle there. And these bases, these treaty ports, as they became known, including Shanghai, Canton, and other places, were places that foreigners could settle and they could trade there. So that was the big shift. Hong Kong was partly a military base, partly trading post. But it was soon eclipsed by Shanghai. Shanghai became a more important port for the British and also for other foreigners. So hot on the heels of British, the French and Americans also secured their own treaties with China that gave them access to China for trade. And China's always been attractive to foreigners wanting to trade because of its huge population. So at this time, it had about 400 million people. It was the most populous country in the world then, just as it is now. So business people were always excited by the idea of 400 potential customers. Never quite worked out for them, but that was a big part of the appeal of China. So trade increased dramatically from that point on. China had not been isolated the way it's often depicted. It had just been able to trade very much in its own terms, and it kept foreigners at bay beyond its borders 
and it didn't necessarily feel it needed foreign goods because it, it was such a, a wealthy empire in its own right. That changed with opium. That was the big, big commodity that they really started to import and then uh, other commodities followed on. So, so it's a kind of trading relationship, but it's very unequal. So the Qing Empire is obviously weakened by that. It's weakened by various domestic rebellions and things as well through the 19th century. So eventually there's a lot of discontent among the middle classes in China and intellectuals who decide they want a change of government. And some of them want a sort of modest change. But what wins out is a radical overthrowing of the entire imperial system. So there had been 2,000 years of continuous rule by one emperor or another in China. And in 1911, the Qing dynasty is toppled in a revolution, a fairly quick, comparatively bloodless revolution. Perhaps only a 1,000 people lost their lives. It was violent. You know, people were massacred and so on. But, it, 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 you know, given the scale of China, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't very violent. Was that the beginning of communism then in China? Not yet. It's a sort of stepping stone towards it. So that revolution installs a very weak democratic government. So we, it's the end of imperial rule, but democracy falls through the cracks very quickly. The elections are held and then the uh, results are not adhered to. A new president emerges who's a, um, a dictator, Yuan Shukai. And then there's just a couple of decades of very weak government. Um, then there's a, a nationalist party that comes to power and this is, you know, a period of dramatic change in China. So you've got change at the top in terms of who's in charge, but you've got social and cultural change at every level of society. What it means to be Chinese is changing. Uh, what it's like to be a man or a woman or a child in China is changing. And so that's one of the, the things that I'm really interested in. But just to answer your question, we then get the emergence of the Communist Party, partly out of the discontent at the government being so weak and ineffectual, you've still got foreign imperialism making people very angry and, and there's a real growth in Chinese nationalism. So the Chinese Communist Party is formed in 1921 and it doesn't do very well to start with. There's no sense in the 1920s that this is going to come to rule China. It's a, it's a small hodgepodge of kind of Marxist intellectuals, not, not a mass movement. But it builds up that mass um, support through the 1930s, particularly with the threat of Japan and then the outbreak of the Second World War in China, which starts in China in 1937 with the, the Japanese attack. And the communists do very well out of that because the nationalists aren't seen as fighting Japan early enough. The communists kind of are able to claim that they were always against Japan. They are standing up for China's interests against all foreign imperialism. So after the end of the Second World War, there's a civil war between the nationalists and the communists. And ultimately, the communists under Mao Zedong win in 1949. And we've had the Chinese Communist Party in power ever since 1949. And that's when the nationalists went off into Taiwan and exile. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that was under Chiang Kai-shek, who was then a dictator in Taiwan. So we're familiar with Taiwan being a democracy now, but that's only since the 1980s. It, it was a uh, kind of military dictatorship. Until... Taiwan is really interesting, just while you mention it. We don't have... In history, many countries where there's a kind of control, like a scientific control. So you have what happens in a society under communism, and then Taiwan shows what happens in that same society when it becomes capitalist and democratic with very similar culture and you know, other influences. So really interesting way that we can compare. And Hong Kong is the same. Yeah, I was going to say that could the same be said for, for Hong Kong. Yeah.
So going back to your research at hand, could, could you tell us how child slavery began in China and, and how it became such commonplace? It comes out of poverty, but also different attitudes towards the value of children and girls in particular. So just as most of the world through most of history, most people have been poor. China was no different. And there wasn't really any tradition of um, family planning. So the main way that people dealt with excess children that they either didn't want or couldn't afford was either through abandonment or infanticide. And so a preferable, more benign alternative to that was giving up your child to, to another family. They were, it was called adoption, but they were not raised as children of the new family. They were raised as uh, domestic help servants, but they were unpaid. They were not free. They could be bought and sold multiple times. So I would define that as slavery. And it was almost always girls who were sold in this way because boys were valued much more highly, again, as in most societies for most of history. Um, but particularly so in China because of its tradition of the veneration of ancestors and to continue your family line and ensure that you and your ancestors are suitably respected in, uh, in the future, you need to make sure you have sons. But girls are no good to you. They marry off into a different family and it's then the ancestors of their husband who they venerate, not their own parents so much. So, um, so girls are really not valued in traditional China nearly as much as boys. And they weren't even sent to school or didn't receive any education? No, I mean, obviously, in, in uh, again, most of the world and most of history, no one went to school. Education was quite highly biased in China compared with, let's say, early modern Europe but much more for boys than for girls. Uh, again, uh, it's a common story. You know, notice that I'm keen not to say that China is necessarily kind of worse than other countries. Um, it's, you know, these are quite common factors. It's just that they, they're expressed in different ways in China. So by around 1900, maybe more than 50% of boys had basic literacy, that they, they had received some kind of education, but fewer than 10% of girls would have had that kind of literacy. And yeah, the, the girls who are, sold into other families, certainly no one would have bothered to, to educate them in those circumstances. And girls who were free in China during the same period, did they receive equal education to the boys? Not equal education, no. Um, it was, Again, so um, just as gender makes a difference, class makes a difference. So in wealthier families, yes, girls would have um, had a degree of education. They might have had some tutoring alongside their brothers. They would have been taught to read and then they would have read some novels and, um, and, you know, sort of picked up some of the classics of Chinese education. But the emphasis would have been on raising them to be good wives and mothers. So there wasn't much need for them to be educated too much. But that's one of the things that starts to change in the 20th century. Alongside those political changes I described at the beginning, you have a sense that China has been dominated by foreign countries because it's allowed itself to become weak and the way it will become a strong nation is if the children have strong mothers. So um, in the early 20th century, you start to have education reformers and others calling for women to be educated so that they can raise their children to be good citizens and stand up for a stronger country. I was reading about the process of bound feet in China and just to tell our listeners, it's a process where girls, they sort of would restrict the size of their foot, so they bind it and break the foot, and it sort of looks like a, a foot in a high heel. And it sort of sounds like what you're talking about before, about 
the sort of outlook on women growing up in China was that they would just be kept in the house. And yeah. this was sort of another way to restrict them going out and working and yeah. having that sort okay. of problem with their... It, it is, and also it's a marker of chastity. You know, um, it, traditionally there was a kind of adage that if you were inquiring about a potential wife for your son, and that's how it worked, you know, parents would negotiate with one another to arrange a marriage. You would ask in the village, you know, what do you know about this girl? And what you wanted as a response was, we never see her. We don't know anything about her because right. that showed that she was a good girl. She was chaste. She stayed at home. And if her feet are crippled, and, and that you're right, they actually broke the bones. So they broke the arch of the foot, so the toes and the heels were kind of crushed together. So women hobbled, and, and around 90% of the population for a thousand years experienced this. It, it, it was the vast majority of the Han Chinese ethnicity, the dominant ethnic group in China. They literally didn't have the kind of freedom of movement to move around. Um, so it was a way of being sure that they had um, they'd been chased before marriage. It also had an economic benefit. So there's kind of research that shows that in an economy where you needed girls to help with domestic uh, kind of handicrafts that the mother might be doing, if she couldn't run off and play, then she was confined to being at her mother's feet and learning how to spin silk or whatever the kind of local handicraft was. And when in the 1920s you start to have much more factory work that was performed by women, particularly in, in cotton mills and silk villages, Girls started going to work, and you start to see at that point foot binding falling away. Now, there's also legislation banning it, but um, so it's hard to separate out the different factors, but there is a theory that it's because it stops being economically beneficial to have your daughters with bound feet, so that's when the practice starts to decline. With the rise of communism, was that the first big movement that began to give women and girls more rights and opportunities? I'd say it's the second big movement um, because there are, you know, there is this kind of reforming tendency to try and make China strong in the 20s before the communists are a big influence. But the communists had absolute control over society from the 1950s, whereas the previous government had tried to issue reforms. They had banned foot binding, they banned child marriage, they banned child slavery and so on. But they didn't have the strength of the state to enforce those bans. When the communists did the same thing, they could enforce it. They had cadres in every village, in every workplace. There's no getting away from omniscient power of the state. So that's when you, you don't see anyone binding their feet really after 50s. You don't see child slavery for many decades at that point. And child marriage continues but declines. So the, the, the communists, yes, made the biggest difference to these countries. The one-child policy, it was imposed in the 70s? Yeah, it, so... In 1978, a couple of years after the death of Mao, Mao himself had thought that having a big family was really beneficial for the country, like lots of dictators, Mussolini and others had the same idea. He Mao thought that China was strong because it had such a big population and it could withstand an attack or a disaster because of that. So he encouraged big families. But there were scientists who were getting increasingly worried that China wouldn't be able to support an ever-increasing population. And so there was a sudden reversal policy in 1978 and a very draconian one where families could only have one child. And what's often not understood about this policy is you had to have a, a permission in advance to get pregnant. 
So permission was only granted to married couples. It wasn't like you could automatically have your one child whenever that happened to occur. So it's an, a really amazing intrusion into people's private lives, into their family yeah. lives. And was there contraception at, yeah. at the time? That it so was from that time, yeah, there are accounts of people queuing up for their monthly supply of condoms uh, <laughs> from their work unit or their commune. And yeah, uh, contraception is very uh, widespread by that point and very encouraged, um, could be forced on you. And there were a couple of points when the one-child policy was at its strongest in the 80s and the 90s when there were forced sterilizations uh, in quite large numbers of women who kept having extra planned births, as they were called, and also forced abortions were very common. Uh, but far more common than that was voluntary abortions. And even though you weren't technically supposed to abort a child because it was a girl, that's what happened. So you start to have this enormous imbalance in the sex ratio in China. Now there's approximately 120 boys for every 100 girls, and that's been the case for quite a long time. So it's thought there's about 30 million men who will not be able to marry because there simply aren't enough women for them. So that's you know, a pretty interesting experiment in, in yeah, terms of for sure. But there are benefits to it. Um, so people really started to value their daughters if that's all they had. Whereas before, if they'd had big families, all of their resources would have gone on boys. They started to really value their only daughter. Um, they started, girls got better education, better medical care. And then on the marriage market, they could be more demanding because they're, they're a kind of scarce resource. And so uh, in some ways, it's been good for the girls who are born. It's just, uh, you know, there's obviously all the girls who weren't born. At the moment in China, there's a two-child policy, is that right? That's right, exactly. So it's not that the family planning policy has disappeared. It's just been relaxed slightly. So it's still the same. You still need permission in advance before you can have a baby. But that permission will now likely be granted if you're married. And, you know, people are taking advantage of this. Last time I was in China, I was really interested to see shops full of bunk beds, which I had never seen before in China. Obviously, there'd been no need for bunk beds for quite a long time. But because a whole generation grew up not seeing brothers or sisters, that's their norm. So yeah. they don't necessarily want to have more than one child. Women are worried about the impacts on their careers. Um, you know, it's still a fairly traditional society in that the, the bulk of housework and childcare falls on, on women, and yet they're still expected to have a career as well. So a majority of people are not necessarily choosing to take up this opportunity to have a second child. And the, the state's kind of worried about that because China has such an aging population. I read an article about a Chinese woman who she had a brother because her family could afford to pay the, the really high fees imposed to get a second. Yeah, um, so that, that and... absolutely happened. The, the, the birth rate never fell to one. Um, I think it fell to maybe 1.4 at its lowest birth per woman. If you were a poor farmer, the fine for having an extra planned birth might be a year's income. But if you're a wealthy business person in, in Shanghai or Beijing or somewhere, then uh, yeah, you could afford it. So, and then you also have, in the countryside in particular, children who just would never be registered. And they might be um, just hidden from the authorities. Uh, so, you know, it's thought that perhaps there are more children than, than the records show. And that then creates problems because they're not registered, they aren't entitled to healthcare or an education. And girls who are more likely not to be registered. Equal opportunities that the one-child policy indirectly gave girls, is that... Do we still see the effects of that or is it, has it sort of gone reverse since the end yeah. of the one-child policy? We do in the sense that girls' education is still definitely 
really highly valued. Um, some of those changes, because they were in place for a generation, have just become cultural norms. But in other ways, um, gender equality has perhaps gone back a little bit from, from the kind of Maoist era in the sense that you don't see women in politics anymore. Um, you did up to and including the Cultural Revolution, um, which was 66 to 76. Women are, you know, they, they're expected to be pretty and they're, they're kind of judged on their looks in a way that you don't get in a communist society. And more so, I think, than in Western society now, although that's just a matter of opinion, I imagine some people might disagree with just going on to censorship now, you spoke about how censorship impacts children and, and students growing up in China from their textbooks being censored and giving them a one-view history of China and the world. So how does censorship affect children growing up in schools and, and students in universities? And is it creating a brainwashed people by the Chinese Communist Party in power? I wouldn't worry about it. Um, society being brainwashed, but it's of course affected by censorship. Censorship is everywhere in China. And if you can get people young, then their worldview is more malleable. And, and the Communist Party has always been aware of this. They've always stressed the value of education in, um, in propaganda. And everything is censored. So access to news. But yeah, if you think everybody reads history textbooks at school, even if they never pick up another book or read anything else about history for the rest of their lives, so that really affects their understanding of their nation's past. And textbooks, are um, they, they went through a period from the 90s into the 2000s when a little bit of nuance was possible and some regional variation between textbooks. But in the last few years, there's been a complete crackdown on any kind of difference between textbooks. There's just one standard textbook used throughout the entire country. And it gives a very simplistic and, and quite skewed view of Chinese history, it doesn't recognize anything negative about the Communist Party, for example. So I mentioned the Cultural Revolution there. That's just not something that can be taught about, even though it's something that these children's parents may well have been red guards and, and very active in the Cultural Revolution. It's not something they're going to be taught about. They are taught about the kind of Japanese atrocities in the Second World War, but they're not necessarily taught about Japanese suffering in the Second World War. The implication of the textbooks is that the communists were the ones mainly fighting Japan, but actually the nationalists fought and lost far greater numbers. I could go on and on about the distortions in history textbooks, but the, the key thing is the way it promotes nationalism and the idea that the Communist Party is the saviour of the nation. And if that's the, the view that people are given when they're very young, it's quite hard for them to throw it off. Now, it's not impossible. And obviously, the internet, even though you'll have heard of the Great Firewall of China, which tries to prevent the kind of great information revolution that the internet makes possible from reaching Chinese readers, people can circumvent it. So better educated people in cities are quite likely to have come across alternative views of the past. They don't necessarily accept it. So they'll often think that this is just Western propaganda when they read about things like the Tiananmen Square Massacre. Uh, there's a sense in, in China that we just don't know what happened in 1989, how can anyone know, rather than um, we certainly do know there were a lot of Western journalists there uh, recording it. We've got photographs and video evidence of what happened and, and huge numbers of testimonies. So it's not, it's not controversial uh, in the West at all, but it is um, where it's, understood at all in China, it's seen as something that is unknowable. And there's lots of things like that, which are 
censored and then obviously you know you'd expect the news to be censored what people can visit in museums presents a very nationalistic anti-japanese anti-american view of, of the past and and it is a challenge for for the future if people have grown up with this quite one-dimensional view of china's place in the world that then feeds into things like the coronavirus crisis right now people are quite likely to listen to and perhaps believe you know rumors that are being spread by senior chinese officials that it was an american plant this virus that it, it didn't originate in china naturally at all and no evidence at all to suggest that or you just get people who are very cynical who think you cannot know they realize they can't trust their own sources of information in china and they don't trust the government but they don't know what they can trust because the west also is biased so every source of information is biased and people maybe give up on an interest in politics or history or, or the wide world and just concentrate on their own life so many medical experts are now saying that early cover-ups of the covid 19 outbreak in wuhan including silencing many people who spoke out could have contained the epidemic to just a few hospitals in wuhan so is it fair to say that the global COVID-19 epidemic is a direct result of Chinese censorship? It's one, it's definitely a factor. If, if, uh, if there were a free press in China or just in Wuhan, um, and if people could raise concerns about management of, of crises, uh, and it would be listened to, then uh, yes, this could have been dealt with better. It doesn't necessarily mean it would have been, but it means it could have been dealt with better. Um, you can see how countries like South Korea were able to move very fast, even Hong Kong, closer to home. You know, they were affected by the virus, but because they acted fast and there was a you know, freedom of information, they, they didn't have this massive outbreak. So yes, it, it's definitely a, a huge factor. As Chinese censorship is then spreading beyond its borders, can the United States and Europe in some form combat this censorship, perhaps through trade tariffs and embargoes, or is there anything they can really do? Um, I think the more it tries to combat it, the more that feeds into the cynicism I was uh, referring to, that people will just think, well, it's a kind of East versus West battle of propaganda rather than thinking, you know, if you were Chinese, why would you assume that uh, Western media is any more reliable than Chinese media? As far as they're concerned, everyone has a position that they're peddling. And to an extent, that's true. You know, you look at the kind of uh, rhetoric that comes out of Trump's America. Uh, it's, it's just as written with propaganda as anything that comes out of China. So um, I don't think trying is necessarily going to help, but I'm not without hope because the more exchange you have between different countries, the more people can kind of see for themselves that there are different ways of doing things. You know, we have very large numbers of Chinese students studying overseas in Ireland and elsewhere. They don't necessarily come here and think, wow, this is the land of the free. This is, this is such a, a wonderful society. Often they're really taken aback by how negative our media is because they're mm -hmm. not used to negative media. They're used to positive stories all the time. So they often think, wow, things really don't work well in the West. But it just... The more you have people seeing that there's other ways of running things, they'll see there's some advantages as well as disadvantages to different political systems. Um, that can only be a good thing. I guess we don't know yet how much coronavirus is going to put an end to that kind of international exchange. We might see a real closing down of the kind of globalism that had become our normal way of life. But education is also, you know, I'm, I'm a lecturer, I believe in education. I think the more people have access to different ideas, the more they can try and inform themselves 
and be given the kind of tools of analysis and research to do that, then the more uh, hope there is of a better understanding of different cultures and people. Just before we finish up, I believe you have your own personal experience you might share with us on the Chinese embassy in Dublin attempting to censor a particular lecture you're giving in Trinity College. Yeah, it was for the um, Dublin Chinese New Year Festival a few years ago now. Um, it, it's something I only recently mentioned, well, about a year ago, I guess I mentioned it first to a journalist in passing and then it became a new story. I uh, perhaps naively thought that as it was 60 years since the Great Leap Forward in China, which was launched in 1956, that I would give a lecture on that political movement and the famine that it led to. I think I was just thinking of what would be of interest to an Irish public audience, people here have an understandable interest in the history of famine, and it is a very significant episode in China's recent past. The Dublin Embassy, Chinese Embassy, did not agree that this was a good topic for a lecture. And I was trying to be understanding and think, okay, if I were in China and I wanted to mark, say, Christmas with a, a story about something terrible in, in Irish history, like uh, the, the, what Zach and Pan did at them, how would how would we think about that? We might think it's an odd choice, but we wouldn't try and stop it. And that's the difference. They tried to get the Dublin City Council to force me to change the lecture. They called on me and we had a meeting asking me to change the lecture. All I allowed was that the title be changed. I didn't change the content of the lecture. The title then became a kind of euphemism. I just said the best laid plans, dot, dot, dot rather than you know spelling out that it was a history of, of plans that led to a famine. So it was not great to see the Chinese embassy here behaving the way they would in China, thinking that they could throw their weight around and decide what an academic would do. This lecture was taking place on Trinity's campus. So and you know they weren't paying me and they weren't organizing the festival. So they really had no right to interfere with it and but they think they do. They think that if anything is to do with China, they can, they ought to be able to control the agenda. So it's something we need to be aware of. Um, and something that there is, it's not censorship, but it's propaganda in the, the Irish media. If you look up on the Irish Times kind of Chinese embassy, you'll see that they sponsor loads of articles in not just the Times, but all sorts of other newspapers, positive news stories about China. And if you're not looking for it, you wouldn't necessarily notice that it's the embassy that's that sponsored that. So we are being fed Chinese propaganda here and it's trying to project a kind of soft power positive image of China and there's plenty of positive things you can say about China but we, we don't want that message to be pushed with an agenda the way it is. Thanks for listening. If you liked it, tell your friends about it and maybe give us a five star rating on Apple Podcasts. See you next week.